Hi everybody. Before we start the episode, this is a quick technical note for people who listen to the podcast on an application called Stitcher. So of course, if you're listening to this, you know there are a lot of different podcast distribution apps floating around out there. The big ones being Apple, Google, places like that. But a lot of people listen to the show on an application called Stitcher. It turns out you may or may not have gotten the notification, but the Stitcher application is going to disappear on August 29th, 2023. It's going to go away, right? So if you depend on Stitcher to listen to the Climate Minute, you want to start making plans now. If you listen to the Climate Minute on any other application, any other application, you're good to go. No worries. Uh, that's because, well, it's convoluted, but we post the show to a place called, a website called Podbean, and that Podbean distributes it to the podcast to Apple, which then funnels off and everyone else, all the other applications receive the podcast from Apple. Therefore, if you're not, if you don't use Stitcher, no worries. If you do use Stitcher, you need to get a different application. Uh, I'll put up a link to the frequently asked questions file from the Stitcher people. And there you go. Stitcher seems to be pushing an, uh, the application called Pandora, which is a music streaming app. Uh, we have recently posted the Climate Minute to Pandora. So if you take your advi their advice, you can go there and maybe that becomes your new app. I've also personally moved over to something called Good Pods. We'll see how that works for us. For my own personal listening, uh, it turns out that within Stitcher, if you're in Stitcher, you can download a list of all the shows you like and that you listen to, and you might be able to import those to the new application that you choose. Anyway, um, there you go. Just a heads up. If you listen to the show on Stitcher, you need to find a new app. If you listen to the show on anything else, you don't need to listen to this this because you're fine. Okay? So, good luck. Oh, by the way, if you have an application you like and want can't find the, the Climate Minute there, send us an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net and we'll do our level best to get the show on that app as well. Okay? There you go. You heard it here first. Hi, and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. This show is for the week of August 9th, 2023. The global carbon dioxide levels are 420.07 parts per million, which is way above the 350 parts per million that scientists tell us we should be at. And it turns out there's only 2,338 days left until the year 2030, which means we need to get to work to cut our carbon dioxide emissions in half. Anyway, 
part of cutting our carbon dioxide emissions that's sometimes called the uh, the great energy transition, an energy transition away from fossil fuels to new clean energy sources. Uh, another way to describe that is a just and rapid energy transition, right? We want an energy transition where we move to clean energy technologies, but in a way that is equitable, it includes all communities. Uh, and everyone gets to, gets to go along for the ride. But of course, that means large amounts of money, truly staggering amounts of money have to be, have to change hands in order to convert the whole planet from a fossil fuel system, a legacy fossil fuel way that we generate our electricity now to a clean way with wind turbines and solar panels and all the cool stuff that we talk about. Once we talk about that, that kind of huge amounts of money changing hands, inevitably we get to the world of finance. How are we going to make money available to people, to communities, to countries perhaps? How do we make the money available to do the green transition, to build the wind turbines, even if it's not necessarily something that Bank of America is going to make a lot of money at? Right? We know it's the right thing to do. Private banks might not want to invest in that kind of thing. How, what do we do? What do we do? There's an idea floating around that's, that is called a green bank. And the green bank is intended to basically help get the money into the hands of the people who are going to transition society, right? Get the money into their hands in a way that's equitable, not extortive, exploitational, all that kind of good stuff. So a green bank is a great idea. But of course, the question is, how does that work? What is a green bank? What's this whole mysterious thing around finance that most people's eyes glaze over when they hear? So we are fortunate to have with us some guests who have recently written an article uh, that is was published in some, in a, in a, at a website called The Conversation. And it is explicitly about green banks. And better yet, it takes into account the fact that Massachusetts just started its own green bank for the purposes of uh, trying to resolve our housing issues. So it's great that we have have these guests to talk about it. The people that we have with us today are Tarun Gopalakrishnan, Seth Owasumante, and unfortunately, Bethany Teichin, who is the third author on the article, is can't be with us for technical reasons. But Tarun, Seth, and Bethany are all research fellows at what's called the Climate Policy Laboratory at Tufts University, which is one of the most wonderful universities in all of Boston. It's a great, great place, great place uh, uh, to be. It has long uh, been working on climate issues. Anyway, Tarun, welcome. Thank you, Ted. Great to be here. And Seth, welcome to you, too. Yeah, thank you very much, Ted, and thanks for having us. Super, super. So I tried to set the stage a little bit for what a, a green bank might be and why it's needed. Let me put the ball in your court, Tarun. Did I get anything right there or wrong? I mean, how would you how would you explain the need for a green bank? And then we'll talk about what a green bank is. But I mean, first of all, why would you need something called a green bank? No, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a great question, and especially at this time when there's a lot of 
climate solutions floating around and this is one of them and uh, it's it's a good place to start the conversation with why these are needed <laughs> so to begin with as we as we outline in the in the conversation piece you know green banks are not traditional banks they function more like investment funds and they have a mission to promote sus- sustainability so what they are are generally public or quasi public or non-profit entities that use public funds generally publicly guaranteed funds government guaranteed funds to encourage private investment in a low carbon climate resilient infrastructure so already you can see a little bit of the rationale developing in that they're using public money to basically scale up the amount of private money that goes into areas that are currently underfunded and at the broadest level so that's that's a green investment generally that's underfunded and then you know the the topic that we particularly wrote about which was this new massachusetts green affordable housing initiative is another underfunded area so but but so so yeah. tell me i don't know which one which which of you would want to answer this but tell me what's the what's the the idiot's guide right the the fifth five year old explanation of how public money which public money means like tax money right public money how does mm-hmm. that facilitate private money and what's private money in contrast i mean how you so uh, just to keep up with all those the, the words right there's a quasi public entity which means some kind of a corporation right it's got right. your tax dollars and it's going to what is it going to do you're going to talk to a a private bank like i don't know bank of america or your local uh, your little bank in your city and and what does it do i mean how does that work okay right uh, seth go ahead okay yeah so i i think um in in principle how green banks work or how public um funds is used to leverage private funds you know just come to the core of what de-risking is all about right and now so think about de-risking an investment as kind of a reallocating or sharing or reducing some form of potential risk associated with any investment right so for a private investor and private investor you're looking at either a commercial bank or a normal institutional investors their primary goal and motivation for any investment decision is profit or the returns to be made on their investment in order not to incur losses for their shareholders mm-hmm. so investors may be very apprehensive about investing in environmentally friendly infrastructure such as clean energy technologies which are needed you know to mitigate the dark consequences of climate change and because these technologies are kind of comparatively very nascent technologies right and also a new market category as far as infrastructure investments are concerned so to protect investors and um, to to protect their monies investors may either ask for higher returns on any um, investment they they make or they will decide not to invest at all right mm-hmm. but for all indication the drive towards a climate resilient future cannot be achieved with only public funds private investment the money from the bank the money from the institutional investors the mutual funds we really need all that to be invested or to come together to work for our good as far as climate change is concerned so this is where the idea of de-risking or risk mitigation comes in where a public entity with public funds such as green banks use their funds to leverage the private investments and they leverage investment by utilizing a variety of um, financial instruments such as credit enhancement schemes co-investment or even in some cases technical assistance for a project so by using these funds they are kind of nudging to the investor or they nudge the investor you know to to assume um, to to come on board on any on, on on any project they are hoping to invest into right 
And so they just kind of nudge investors into action by assuming a portion of the risk in a project by themselves to make investors more confident or more secured, you know, in investing in a green project. So, so Seth, let me let me put that back to you yeah. in a, in a I guess a naive way, right? Mm-hmm. Suppose I'm Elon Musk. I have fifty billion dollars I can play with. Okay, yeah. I want to build an ins- and. I do not want to spend that $50 billion on a, I don't know, a wind turbine off the coast of Massachusetts because it's too risky. I might not get my money back, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so what you're saying is that the Green Bank, explain, what, what, what would yeah, the Green so Bank say to Elon Musk? I mean, yeah, how do you- So what a Green Bank can do is to come in and tell Elon Musk that, okay, listen, I'm also going to invest my own money and resources. And in some cases, this can be, um, um, let's say, a loan guarantee or a loan loss reserve, which provide a partial risk coverage to Elon Musk, meaning that there's some money set aside in case there's some form of loss, I will use that money to step in to cover your loss, right? Uh, uh So once you do that, you're giving the investor some form of confidence. Right. That the investor should invest in the project because from the back or from the mind of the investor, this is something risky. I'm not familiar with it. It's new. It's there, there isn't standard applications to how it operates. So anything can happen to my money. Then the green bank can say that, okay, listen, I'm also investing my own money. It has co-investment. So let's do this together. So right. you this with me or I'll give you a partial risk guarantee or a, a loan guarantee that sets some money aside in case you run at a loss, I bring the money to you. I use the money to cover your right. loss. You know? So that is that kind of idea of risk huh? mitigation, making the investor more confident in putting his or her money into a green energy project, which is not very familiar to many investors and which yeah, many yeah, investors yeah. are not very interested in because huh. the risk return profiles are sometimes not very straightforward. And so that's so that's great. So so what the green bank does is the green bank basically says I'll cover any losses. You put your money in. If things go bad, I will I will make you whole. Uh, to the private, it says to the private banker or the Elon Musk is I'll I'll pay you money that you lose as long as you are make this investment uh, and be part of the game. Right. Yes, that's that's it. So, the, I mean, there are a variety of instruments being used. That is one. That is also the other is technical assistance where they could do the entire project operation for you or um, sometimes create a more standardized, you know, process for the mm-hmm. investment process. So they can come in in a variety of ways, but whichever way they come in is the whole idea is to give the investor some form of confidence, de-risking mm-hmm. whatever risk that they perceive or that are also real as far as the project is concerned. So they give they give the nerd to, to the investors or make them more confident about you know making good returns for their investments. Interesting. So so I guess then the, so let me say it back to you. The 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 Green Bank does something called de-risking, which is removing the risk that private banks that have more money than the green bank, the private banks are willing to participate in the investment in something that might be a little bit more risky because they're willing to put their money in because the green bank will protect them. And the green bank gives them other kinds of technical assistance in terms of setting up the loans and whatnot. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, certainly. But in the financial, right. sense, uh, you uh, don't, 
necessarily remove the risk you reallocate it you share it or reduce it you know so risk you cannot remove entire risk, but you mm-hmm. you share the risk or you reduce the risk and that is how it's you know captured in the financial terms i believe um Tyrone also have some uh, um, intervention here right right Tyrone, you were going to say something right now did yeah, just to echo that, yeah, it's uh, you know you can never zero out risk. So what they're looking to do is bring the, bring down the risk levels to uh, to levels that uh, you know private finances are more familiar with. So nice. what you want to do is bring down the level of risk associated with a quote unquote green housing project to the level of risk more commonly associated with a housing project just normally, you know, yeah. or bring down the level of risk associated with a low end project. To the level of risk associated with a with a housing project more generally, so you, which all those kinds of projects have risks as well, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but but those are risks that private finance is bears has been willing to bear, and yeah, the, the, as Seth mentioned, there are there are a variety of instruments. You know, another, another kind of instrument is the green bank lending money to private finance uh, to do what is known as on lending. So they lend at a low rate to private financiers with the mandate. Uh, with the requirement that that money be lent on at affordable rates to say homeowners or project developers etc uh, and so there there you have a different type of uh, risk distribution with the same overall purpose of bringing down the level of risk for the for the private financier and i, I think i think from the policy point of view uh, what, what this short term bringing down of risk of for private finance is supposed to achieve is that in the long term, private finance gets more comfortable investing in such projects, even without public money. Mm-hmm. And that's through mm-hmm. two channels. Now, number one, the cost of green technologies or the cost of investing uh, in low-income communities, for example, eventually comes down in terms of finance. And number two, you have a data record. You have a lending record to these kinds of projects that now private finance can look at and calculate risk and reward in a more accurate way. Whereas right now, if anybody is doing that kind of lending, generally speaking, if it's a private financier, the data is going to be proprietary. Right. But in, right. with a green bank, the data that's generated is a public good. And mm-hmm. so everybody can look at that and say, ah, maybe some of these investments, actually, you would hope quite a lot of these investments are not as risky as, as we thought they were. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And just, just again, for the listeners, I mean, the, the- the, the projects we're talking about are things, are renewable energy projects or, and I think I hope we can talk about the Massachusetts case of homeowners retrofitting their homes or, or you know, resident, residences. I mean, these are things that that are not very attractive right now. And, uh, but those are the specifics we talk about. I mean, it's kind of abstract about the risk and, uh, and what the bank's willing to do. But what you come down to is, is is can we get money into I don't know Lowell to mm. retrofit their homes? You, you know to, to facilitate that kind of. How do you do that? What you're saying is the way you do it is by have the the green bank basically help the private sector be comfortable with with taking the risk. Interesting. So tell me, tell me, whichever one of you two smart guys is, is, can talk about, what is the Massachusetts Green Bank and how is it different? Oh, wait a minute, before we even go, before we even talk about Massachusetts, can you guys describe or answer the questions to whether or not the concept of a green bank is a new or old idea? 
because in my reading about green banks, I mean, it goes all the way back to the new, the new deal in the 1930s. There were effectively sort of banks that leveraged private money. So it's not, so, so I'll stop there. Is it a new idea or an old idea? Whichever one of you guys wants to answer that. Uh, you're, you know what? You're, you're right. Now, my, my initial answer was going to be, uh, it is a, it is a new version of a very old idea, uh, and the the vintage that I was willing to attach to that idea is the vintage that both of our advisors, which is uh, which is Professor Kelly Sims Gallagher uh, at Fletcher, often refers to uh, the example of the German Develop Development Bank, which is the KFW, which was one of the development banks that was you know seeded with effectively Marshall Fund money at, at by the U.S. Time. after World War II. Yeah, right. and it's one of her. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of her. And listen, uh, you, you know, uh, she she's better qualified to speak on the specifics of American politics than than I am. But it's one of her uh, disappointments, I suppose, that an idea that took root so beautifully in Germany and in other parts of the world, like for example, China, many developing countries, has not quite taken root in the same way in the US, this this development bank idea. But and now and now as you have pointed out, actually it has an even older vintage, uh, which is going back to the Green New Deal uh, in the in the thirties. Now now the quote unquote modern history of green banks in the US generally tends to start around 2010, 2011 when the Connecticut Green Bank was set up, which is, you know, the still the lar largest green bank. And then it was followed by the New York uh, Green Bank a couple of years later. Uh, now I was, I've, I've also read, and of course this speaks to how quickly evolving this general family of solutions is. That there was a smaller non-profit sort of sub-state level green bank in Florida sometime in 2009, and which is, you know, the, the resources that we're working with, which is this coalition of green capital, was was uh, founded in I believe 2009. So. It's around the modern history is around around that time, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and uh, you know. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, it's a fascinating thing that that I mean, the the current incarnation is a new a new application of uh, what I again I would say an older an idea that's been around. And the reason I bring up sort of the old idea is that I mean, this has been done. It's not like it's not like this is an untried model or something that you know, is a crazy idea. It's been done. It's been successful. It just needs to be implemented, right? Yeah. And absolutely. I, I think, absolutely. Go ahead, Seth. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. I know. You go, Seth. Yeah. yeah and, and Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah go ahead. Like, rightly said, it, it's been around for a very long time. I think it, it's now become more apparent to all of us and for a number of reasons. One, because private investment or private money is not really flowing into the space of climate finance to be able to, you know, deal with actions or projects that can really help the world mitigate the dark consequences of climate change and also adapt to climate change as well. And so they become more in the quest of looking for innovative financing mechanisms. I think green banks have now become more into our phases, if I may put it in that way, or they become more apparent to us we're really looking out to them to see what they can also do in terms of leveraging and private investments for what we've been talking about for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Private investments are not flowing into climate action. Okay, so that's great. So we have this idea, tried and true. We are, you know, giving it a second look and it's a very attractive thing. 
what is the what has Massachusetts done, and what is the current proposal? I mean, what, what, there is so my understanding is that Massachusetts has created a green bank for the express purpose of addressing the question of affordable housing in Massachusetts, affordable, climate resilient, clean housing in Massachusetts, which of course is the big dear listener, if you don't know, I mean, residences in Massachusetts account for an enormous fraction of the carbon dioxide emissions generated in the state. Buildings do. So fixing buildings, and there's some number floating around that before the year 2030, Massachusetts needs to retrofit 1 million homes. And so if that doesn't make your eyes go, get wide, say, how are we going to finance a million a million renovations before the year 2030? You need new ideas. So tell me, again, whichever one of you is the, is the right one, what is the new Massachusetts proposal? How is it similar? How is it different to the history of green banks up to, up to now? Right. I mean, so, so the uh, thing that interested us the most about the Massachusetts proposal, apart from the fact that, of course, we are residents of Boston and take a healthy interest in Massachusetts as a result, uh, is that the, the messaging around it seemed so clear that this was going to be an affordable housing bank. Now, affordable housing is not a completely in priority for other green banks. There are parts of the New York Green Bank money that are set aside for that purpose. There are parts of uh, the uh, Connecticut Climate Bank that has, uh, Green Bank that are set aside for that purpose. But what seemed unique here was that this was effectively an extension, I believe, of a campaign promise, a mayoral campaign promise to improve the amount of affordable housing in the state. And that was then linked with uh, the, uh, the, the climate challenge in Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Climate Action Plan. Uh, to come up with this proposal that spoke to the intersection of two crises, and so from our point, from from our point of view, this is kind of the holy grail of climate policy. If you can make it, uh, if you can take it out of these abstract ideas about, you know, emissions in the atmosphere, which are the scientific bedrock of how we understand climate change, they, we cannot have those discussions. But when you're trying to make them speak to people's priorities. Speaking to the kind of economic priorities that this bank was speaking to, uh, just seemed to be a very, a potentially very productive way of going about it. Now, there are, you can have arguments against it. For example, buildings account for something like 19% of our residents' emissions. There's still emissions coming from electricity, uh, which is to say, coal and nat uh, natural gas particularly, there's still emissions coming from transportation. So there are other sectors that you could potentially uh, put money towards. But they've chosen to do housing. And they've chosen to do housing on priority because that is a priority that speaks to Massachusetts politics at this particular point of time. Mm -hmm. So that is very useful. Now, the, the details of how they plan to use this money and what priorities they're going to address within that theme of green affordable housing are still unclear. Mm -hmm. But we thought this was a great opportunity in a couple of ways, which is number one, so the 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 way that green affordable housing uh, is usually done is these technology retro... Uh, now, there's three layers of it. Number one is more energy efficient appliances, appliances that consume less energy. And, and, and Toron, just let me just, 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 what we're talking about now right. is in Massachusetts, how do we go about the very nitty gritty task of 
upgrading all the sort of existing residences even before we start talking about new buildings, right? And and the first layer you were just saying is simply appliances, right? Get a heat pump, uh, use an induction cooktop, that kind of stuff, right? So please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to... No, that's that. That's exactly on point. I mean, in, to my mind, there's three layers to it: right? Massachusetts and and in other states. The first is just making things more energy efficient uh, appliances. Number two is changing the source of energy from, you know, natural gas uh, to electricity. And number three, and that's really the big question: whether this bank is going to address that, is increasing the stock of housing itself. And that third category, we've not seen a lot of. In, in other states, although we have seen some of it. But that third category, you know, it gets to these real big political debates about, okay, the role of single-family housing versus multifamily housing, so yes. on and so forth. And that, that, you know, that is difficult territory. But oh, yeah. there's an opportunity here to have, have those discussions and see whether you cannot, whether you can, you can make, you know, you can effectively use the same pot of money to do two things, create a new stock of housing as well as do it in a sustainable manner, because for the simple reason that in theory, in theory, it is cheaper to build a new building with and with with the green energy efficient appliances built into it from the beginning, than it is to effectively change uh, the appliances on old buildings. So if you mm-hmm. get that work done right at the beginning, it is cheaper in the long run. It is of course more expensive as an upfront cost, which is why financing these projects becomes difficult. But mm-hmm. if you if you are able to put money towards financing those kinds of projects at the beginning, then it is cheaper for 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 definitely the house owner uh, in the in the long run. So the se- the second area that I'll briefly touch on is to to just to widen what we think of as climate action from emissions reduction to adaptation. And I loved. Uh, Marissa Zampino, who came on a couple of weeks ago, I believe, or maybe longer than that, talking about, you know, climate resilience versus climate safety. And mm-hmm. I think, again, this is, this is the kind of money that can, that can speak to that kind of concern, you know, this climate safety concern, which is not primarily, uh, less CO2 in the atmosphere concern. It is a, given that we have some CO2 in the atmosphere, how do we make our housing more resilient? Interesting. So, yeah. resilient, when you say resilience, I think in your article, you talked about, um, Improved parkland, not not parks so much, but parkland and the sort of uh, flood protection and all those things that make a place better to live in, while simultaneously making it more resilient against climate uh, climate change. Right. Tree- and so Marissa Zampino was talking about trees, right? Just tree cover as a place to begin to uh, to ameliorate these things. But I think it's fascinating that I guess I hadn't appreciated the idea that the Green Bank could increase the amount of housing that's available to people, you know, and make that increased housing, increased amount of housing clean and resilient. But, but I mean, that's a very interesting point because Massachusetts, Massachusetts is in such a stickle about just the sheer number of houses. Where can people live, right? There's no, the rents are too darn high, as they say, and there's, we need more housing. And, that's fascinating because the overlap of climate issues, future we're building, current political problems of being lack of affordable housing all come together here. And I think that's uh, – I think you're right to key in on this bank. So I guess the question is – so 
maybe Seth, maybe you can talk to this. How does so there's a there's a green bank in Massachusetts focused on affordable housing. I want an affordable house. How do I how do I do I go to the green bank and ask for a loan? Or do I go to my city and say, do you go talk to the green bank and help me out? Or how does how does that interaction go? And how does maybe I, I mentioned this before? When does the listener of this show or the person who wants a new house, how do they interact with the Green Bank or how do they see that money? Um, yeah, for sure. I, I believe for now, um, Massachusetts is still putting in, in the operational plans for the for its Green Bank. So I'm not too sure whether they've launched any program yet, but most of the times it would happen to be um, a call for um, maybe funds. The funds will be made available through a program or a project, which will be largely advertised to people, um, so you need to apply, and once you qualify for it, you get you get the opportunity to tap into the investment available. You use it for whatever thing you're supposed to use it to do, whether it be to retrofit in a building or you know changing your insulator, whatever it is. The program may spell it out clearly, and then citizens or people could easily apply, you know, for such programs, and you know be able to tap into the funding to be able to do whatever thing that they want to do in line with the objectives of what a, um, what a program of the Green Bank is supposed to achieve. And most of the time, there's a lot of monitoring as well. So you just do not have the money to do whatever thing you want to do with, but to specifically use it to do what you claim you want to use the money for, and also in line with whatever program that a bank is rolling out or the state is rolling out. But, so that but, is- but the, typically you're saying that the the... The, the 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 Massachusetts programs are not formulated yet, so we can't say what's going to happen in Massachusetts. But generally speaking, you might think it might go to a community or the money might go to someone who's a, a, a developer who says, I'm going to build clean, affordable housing because I got the money and I'm going to build it in this town. And there's going to be 25 houses there. And then he sells it to the individual people who want to – is that you know at least one version that might be real? Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. And then from the experience of the Connecticut Green Banks, that rolls out, like I was saying, a lot of programs to people. Um, you can apply directly to the Green Bank and they uh-huh. find their own ways of, you know, um, dispersing the money to you uh-huh. to use it to whatever um, thing. If it's providing some form of solar for your house to replace your natural gas or other fossil fuel sources in your home, that is, it's also a possibility. And then there's a lot of monitoring as well to just make sure the money is being used for whatever thing it's meant um, to be used for. Yeah, you can't you can't go buy a Maserati with it and uh, go on vacation in uh, in Bermuda. You, you have to use it a certain way, right? That's that's good. That's a good thing. Exactly. Uh, the the um, okay. So the tell me this. What's the? We all know that there's something called the Inflation Reduction Act, who Joe Biden should be getting credit for, right? There's a ton of money. Lots and lots of money. I think you guys mentioned that the the federal government is now making money available that potentially could go into green banks. I mean, what's the story there? How does that work? Yeah, and tell them time in when um, if necessary. So um, green banks. Let me put it this way: green banks will be very important to the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And um, because um, the the act creates a grant program called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is a 27 billion investment fund to mobilize private capital to address, of course, the climate 
crisis and also promotes um, energy independence, particularly in low-income and disadvantaged communities. Mm-hmm. Now, the fund, the Green Gas Reduction Fund, is um, divided into three different grants programs. The first is the National Clean Investment Fund. The second is the Clean Communities Investment Accelerator. And then the third is the Solar for All program. And together, the first two um, have a capital seed capital of 20 billion out of the 27 billion. And this is billion. Yes. And this is earmarked to be given to nonprofits, right? Now, but these nonprofits will uh, have to or must in turn invest indirectly into um, climate resilience or climate active projects through other local financing institutions, particularly green banks. And this is so because, you know, out of the many financial institutions we have around, green banks have that clear vision or clear mandate of investing in low, investing in low carbon infrastructure. So green banks become a very focal point to meet the objectives of the greenhouse and the greenhouse gas reduction fund, um, which is provided for by the IRA. So green banks will be very, very instrumental in implementing the acts. But of course, with green banks will be involved, what kinds of projects will be funded and what oversight will be required are all not currently clear. But what we do know, I believe from some of the EPS um, communications that the funds will be disbursed to um, award recipients and green banks sometime by September 2024. So yeah, th- th- that is the whole story. Green banks seem to occupy a very important position in being able to um, utilize well, utilize the twenty-seven mm-hmm. billion um, fund that the IRA um, provides for. So, so tell me, do we need a? I know that Senator Markey has proposed some kind of a bill for a federal green bank. Is that something that would kind of sit on top of all the other green banks and feed them money? I mean, again, it's not it hasn't been done. I mean, would would a federal green bank be an advantage, and what would it need to be like in order to help all of the, uh, say, the Massachusetts green bank? Tyrone, you look like you're ready to uh, jump on that one. Uh, well, my my initial thought on that is. Uh, it, Given that the green bank idea is is a good idea at the state level, yeah, in a general sense, it is a good idea at the federal level as well. the The reason we we don't have that we don't have that structure, and we have this grant structure instead. The the greenhouse gas reduction fund, who which some people have referred to as kind of the equivalent of a federal green bank or the next best thing, but not quite a federal green bank. But the specific reason why you have uh, this instead of the green bank is because green banks need uh, a statutory uh, need statutory backing. They need a law setting them up and making sure that the requirements around their solvency and capital adequacy are very clearly spelled out, mm-hmm. which in a way that binds successive governments. You're creating a new organization rather than creating an item in a budget, uh, because in principle, an item in a budget can Although, of course, the federal government has ways in which it stretches out the dispersal, disbursement of funds even beyond one particular administration. In principle, the money that is authorized to be spent by one administration is limited that, to that administration alone. When you set up an institution, it lives on beyond the administration. So that requires a level of political will in excess of what is available at the moment. But in principle, of course, yeah, there is... There are there are good reasons to have a federal green bank in in pretty much every every country. I would assume. Interesting. So so I, I get I, one more question. 
one one last question maybe I should say is the is you guys haven't you guys didn't express the green bank in this way but let me say what I've heard and you tell me if I'm crazy or if it's uh, right or wrong is that the green banks can invest in or help private investments right the mechanisms we've talked about the green banks can facilitate investment in things that are not attractive to private capital and they but they have very secure funding at a lower perhaps at a lower rate payoff and that that kind of thing is very attractive to pension funds for example like the california pension fund would love to have all this money sitting in projects that are very low risk but that are building clean water purification facilities for Flint, Michigan, and doing all that kind of stuff, right? Is that a fair assessment that the the return might be slightly lower on these kind of investments that the Green Bank would facilitate, but that it's much more secure? So you have a long-term steady income from that. That, that I see you nodding, Tyron. Is that a fair statement? I, I think uh, it may not necessarily be um, a low return project, right? Um, for for instance, investing in a in in a solar project or a wind farm that produces electricity, you may be able to get more returns. In fact, I mean, I don't want to go into the technicalities of it because LCO is it all that, but you may be able to get more returns than investing in a fossil fuel mm. um, plant, right? Um, so. It, the, the whole idea is they are just not attractive to many investors because they are relatively new compared to other infrastructure assets, which are being, they've had experience with over years, years, there are a lot of records and so they know how to go about it. But for many clean energy technologies or, you know, climate, low carbon projects, they are still new, still growing. And we are not too sure how it's going to go from project preparation to construction to open. So the dynamics becomes a bit, you know, all over the place for anyone who is an institutional investor, right? I mean, for California is an exception because that state is climate active in its own way. So, I mean, I, I get the example, but generally um, you look at it from the perspective that many clean energy technologies are still growing. We are still learning, you know, even... The engineers are still learning about the technologies right, themselves, right. how much more the investors, right? So hopefully we get to the point where, like I think Tarun had mentioned, when we do this over and over again and it becomes, you know, a well-established trend, there will be no more risk, right? right? Then anyone will be very confident in investing to us. So that's why the green banks are important to help close that gap um, for us. Well... <laughs> This, I mean, this, this, there is so much to talk about here. I mean, it would, perhaps you guys have to come back on and we'll go through a few more of these questions because it's really interesting stuff. I think we need to put it down here. This is, uh, we should, uh, but this is, this is fantastic. What I tell you what I'm going to do. I will put up a link to the, to your article in the conversation magazine. It's a website. Uh, people, you should read it. It's a great, great explanation and you can see, uh, you can you can learn more. There's lots of good links in it. We'll put that on the blog, the MCAM blog. That's at massclimateaction.org. You look for newsletters and more. Pull that down. There's something. something there's a option called blog and podcast. In there, you'll get all those hot links, and you can listen to the show. Alternately, you can listen to this show on many of the modern podcast distribution apps. I will remind you, dear listener, that Stitcher 
If you're listening to us on Stitcher, Stitcher goes away at the end of this month. So you need to find a different place to listen to, to the Climate Minute, which I know that you're desperate to do. You have to find another place to, uh, to, to get our show because we will still be there. If you don't use Stitcher, no worries. You don't have to do anything. You're all set. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please send us an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. Let us know what we ought to be talking about. We want to thank our good friend D.R. Tucker for his continuing research support. We want to close where we always close by saying that we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, that we accept responsibility for building a durable future, and that we believe it's our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out. Because of that, we have to insist the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulations, green banks, investments, and a price on carbon that respects environmental justice communities. So, Tyrone, thank you so much for being here today. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. And, Seth, thank you for taking the time to chat. I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you very much, Ted. Yes, we really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool. <laughs>